0: Son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. I don't know if this is theologically precise. Um, I read a little bit in theology and uh, study a little bit of theology, and I can't say that um, I've heard this exact terminology, but I think it's true and I think I could justify it. This morning, I'm having fun. (laughs) I mean, it's just fun to be in church. Now, uh, I, I understand where you're coming from. You're saying, is he serious? Does he know what we're facing for the next 30 minutes? (laughs) On a good day, 40 on a bad day? (laughs) I mean, does does he understand that we're going to have to work through and try to follow his thoughts wherever they might go? I, I mean, what's the first thing people say? I don't go to church. Why? It's boring. I'll tell you why they don't go to church if they think it's boring. They just don't know Jesus. They don't understand that it's fun to be with the Savior. Uh, there's a lot of fun things that go on in church. I, it, some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, singing in the choir is fun. Amen. Is that right? Can anybody? Amen. Let me have a testimony. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up singing in, in, in choirs and uh, uh, in, in the, in the so-called adult choirs and, um, and uh, sort of marked my progress to manhood through the choirs from the alto to the tenor to the bass section. <laughs> you know, that, that's sort of my coming of age uh, kind of thing. But, but it's, it's, it's fun being in the choir and you're singing your part and there's other parts over here and you've got it nailed, sort of. And, uh, you know, and, and it's just a good experience. It's a fun experience. Singing hymns is fun. Singing hymns is fun. Oh, come on. <laughs> when, when, you get to, when you grab a hold of one of those nice old hymns that you've that you've known for so many years and the words are still fresh and the meaning is still new and you sing about the love and the grace of God, you sing about the cross, and there's just something that happens in that worship experience, okay? Singing the new songs is fun. No, you didn't say that right. Amen. Right, that is supposed to come up here. There, gotcha, yeah, okay. But you know, some of us have been kicked... Okay, we've been dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century, and, uh, you know, and uh, we hate to admit it, but we kind of like it. We like the, the energy. We, we enjoy the meaning of the words and, and, uh, and the depth of worship that happens in that kind of setting. You know? And I don't know of a better word than to use than, you know, this is kind of fun. It's fun. Now, uh, just a few of you will know what I'm talking about when I say the next thing. Preaching can be fun. I didn't say listening to a sermon can be fun. I said preaching can be fun. Am I right? There are times when the text gets a hold of you and the, the, the thought and the beauty of the, of, of the gospel is just so apparent in front of you and you're describing what God has done and it's just flowing and it's just rolling. I've, at those moments, folks, I really don't care what's happening in your head. I'm just worshiping and praising God. And that's fun. See, the church happens, as it turns out, to be a fun place to be. I, mean, I love my church. I love this church. I like this room. I like the architecture of it. I like the stained glass windows. I also like other kinds of, of churches. When I went to a college, uh, uh, Duke University had a chapel, and it was styled after one of the um, uh, cathedrals in England, uh, and the rumor was after Durham Cathedral, uh, but it was, you know, it was all Gothic and gargoyles. All right, maybe you can't relate, but I can relate. I mean, I mean that, that, that was a way to worship. And you get the pipe organ rolling and you get to think. I mean, you get a good pipe organ going with, the, with what, a 16-foot a posant stop. That'll make it rumble, folks. You think bass guitar's a big, you ought to hear that. I love my little church in Kentucky. You know, Some of you know what I'm talking about here in a minute. There, there was a... Um, uh, um, a display in at uh, the Smithsonian Institute. I don't know if it's still there, but it, it was a part of a, a whole room that was talking about uh, the the South after the Civil War and at the turn of the 20th century and what happened with the migrations of people up to the north and making various points. It was a terrific display and, and very, um, very informative about the history of our nation. But one of the things they had to illustrate um, the life in the South uh, was a typical country church. And there was a, a wooden platform with a very simple pulpit in the middle of it and, and an upright piano on the other side. I didn't play it, but I'm guessing it was out of tune. And then you had the tote boards on, on either side that had the hymn numbers and how many were in Sunday school and how much offering came in, and I was looking at that, and I thought to myself, that's my church. They stole my church out of Kentucky. I mean, that's the kind of church I preached in for a couple of years. Now, if only they had the whole building. You'd see the, the little hole in the ceiling where the stove pipe from the potbelly stove uh, went up through it, and, and uh, you know, that, that was church, and I really enjoyed that kind of setting. Um, a few years back, Debbie and I wound up in Scotland. She was singing in a choir, and I was lugging stuff around, but, uh, uh, but we wound up in, in, in one of the Church of Scotland uh, churches, and uh, that was really an interesting experience because they, they pointed to a building and they said, yeah, that, that's the new building. It was built in the 1600s. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was just a sort of a different way to worship, but, but the beauty and the architecture there, um, you know, I just love churches. But, you know, the church is more than the building. The church is the people. And I just want to tell you, church people are the greatest people on earth. And it's not anything about us. It's about the Savior we serve. The church people are the greatest church people on earth. Now, hang on a moment. I can tell you the stories about who'd done me wrong and who's been hurt. I've been in the room with, with a group of pastors and one man sobbing in tears, sobbing and saying, my boys won't go to church because of the way my church treated their daddy. I know those stories. I know about backstabbing and gossiping. I know about uh, hypocrisy. I know all that. But when you boil it all down and you take away all the stuff that we we inflict upon one another and you see the beauty of Christ in, in, in God's people, there are no people like God's people and church people. I love being around church people. And when you go somewhere else to worship and you're standing next to somebody and they you you don't know them and they don't know you but you both know the same savior and you're singing together and you're worshiping together there's a beauty in that there's an absolute wonder in that the church is a marvelous marvelous beautiful thing and when you see something that beautiful when you see if you will an organization that has that much going for it and that much uh, uh, survivability, if you will, that, you know, stick to that, that that ability to just last through the ages. When you see an organization that, that really brings out the best in the human experience and brings out love and compassion and forgiveness... When you see that going on and you see it not just in one church but in thousands and thousands and thousands of churches and you see it not just in one country but all over the world and you see it not just in one age but you see it throughout the ages of history. When you see an institution like that, when you see the church, you know that its character comes from the top. And by that I don't mean the preacher, the pastor, the pope or the bishop. It comes from Jesus Christ. And that's why uh, when, we, when we look at our text and, and uh, we read there that Paul says, and he is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church. This is the uh, third great thought that, we, that we're pulling out of Colossians chapter 1. You remember that the first thought... Uh, the big thought about Christ is that He is the image of the invisible God, that in Christ we see who God is, and in Christ we uh, come to know. God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second big thought is that he is the firstborn of all creation. That is, the whole universe is pointing to Christ, and the whole universe is designed for Christ, for his honor, for his praise, and for his glory. And this is the third big thought in Colossians 1, and that is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the body, the church. What that means is that the church has her existence from Christ, he brings her into being. He brings her into existence. And the way he does that is seen in the, in the very next part of that verse. He's the head of the body of the church, and he is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might have preeminence. That is, by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church comes into being. Look, no human agency could establish the movement of, of the grace of God in the church the way we've seen it in history. Jesus Christ establishes the church. You know, sometimes we talk about church planters. You know. It's Christ who plants the church. It's Christ is the one who raises it up. We have our existence because of who Jesus Christ is. Have you ever thought about how that would radically change our lives if we got that straight in our head? Can you imagine church business meetings that actually thought, you know, Jesus Christ is in charge now? As opposed to, I'm in charge, I've got to beat you on this, this vote. You know, suddenly if you think Jesus Christ is Lord and you think he's the head of the church, suddenly business meetings become worship services in which the goal is not to win a vote. The goal is to exalt the Savior and to lift up the name of Jesus and to honor and glorify him. Can you imagine how church fellowship would be changed if when two people sort of begin to collide? I've read about it happening in other places where, you know, one personality sort of rubs against the other personality, and they looked at at each other, and they said not, I'm right and you're wrong, but they said to each other, how can we honor Christ together? How can we exalt the head together? How can we make sure the church knows, or, or the world knows, that this church belongs to Jesus Christ together? So he is the head of the body. The church gets her existence from Jesus Christ. And the church is sustained by Jesus Christ. You know, folks, over the course of church history, you see a lot of false steps. You see a lot of places where the church just went off in the wrong direction. Sometimes she identified herself with the power structures of the day said, you know, I've I've got to be linked up to the court. I need to be linked up to the king, or, or I need to be linked up with a particular party or a particular political ideology. And the church has made the mistake of thinking that she was there in the world to join part of the world called the political powers of the day. And the church has gone in that direction, and she has suffered for it. But praise God, out of his mercy, he sends a witness to bring the church away from the world and back to Christ, and back to the gospel and back to the truth of God's word. Sometimes the church has gone, uh, you know, just a little bit off kilter, and she begins to adopt the values of the world, and she begins to adopt the customs of the world, and then she thinks that those accidental things that she's doing that are really of the world, she thinks those are are the only way you can do things, and so the church starts parroting what the world is saying and trying to be, quote, relevant and trying to, to sound so much like the world that nobody will be offended. But in those moments, God, by his mercy, sends a witness and calls her to come out of Babylon, my people, that you may not participate in her sin. God has always brought the church out of her waywardness and brought her back to the groom. Sometimes the church has gone a little bit off kilter and she's forgotten what her roots are and she's forgotten about the truth of God's Word and she's become more impressed with philosophy, more impressed with human thinking, more impressed with, with um, uh, the, th- the things that would tickle the minds and the hearts of, 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 of an audience and she has forgotten about the truth of God's Word. But in those moments, God has sent a witness who has raised up a witness to the truth of the Word of God and brought her back to the Scriptures. Time and time again we see it in church history, that though she wanders, her head always brings her back. I praise God for that. See, he is the head because he establishes the church, and he is the head because he sustains the church, and he is the head because he defines the church, shapes the church, and directs the church. That's what I want for us to look at for the next few moments in the book of Colossians chapter 1. Well, let's start in verse 18. You know, I almost said these verses are good, but they're all good. You know, they're all like really good. Oh, he's the head of the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is the first, first to be raised from the dead. Yeah. Well, wow. that in everything he might be preeminent. What does that mean? I didn't know we were going to have SAT tests. Preeminent, that he might be first. That he might be first and there is no second. That in every situation, in every venue, in every relationship, Jesus Christ would be first. Oh, we need somebody to tell the world that Jesus Christ is first. We need someone to walk into the halls of of governmental power, someone to walk into the White House and say to the president, you need to move to one side. Jesus Christ is first. He is Lord. Someone to walk into the Supreme Court chamber and to tell those justices, move aside. Jesus Christ comes first. He is the only judge of righteousness. We need someone to walk into the halls of Congress and to tell our congressmen and our senators, move to one side. Jesus Christ is first, and he alone knows what is righteous and what is good and what is holy. We need someone to walk into the boardrooms of America and tell the CEOs, CFOs, and UFOs to move to one side (laughs) and to tell them Jesus Christ is first. And you can talk about all the obligation you have to shareholders, but your obligation is to serve Jesus Christ, for he is absolute Lord. He is preeminent. We need husbands to walk into their homes and to lead their families to understand that the husband is not first. Jesus Christ is first. There's a biblical order to marriage, but it begins here. Jesus Christ is Lord and he is first of all. He is preeminent in all things. We need someone to walk into the classrooms and to tell the teachers to move to one side. King Jesus is going to be teaching for a little while now. We need someone to walk into the marketplaces and to move the cashiers and the money changers to one side and to tell them, Jesus Christ has the only value. He is the treasure above all treasures. We need someone to walk into the manufacturing of factories and the assembly lines of America and to tell the unions to move over that Jesus Christ looks out after the workers. We need someone to walk into the high-tech areas of Silicon Valley and to tell those folks, move to one side. Jesus Christ created the electron. He knows more than you do what to do with it for the good of lost humanity. Jesus Christ is preeminent and he comes absolutely first. Folks, that was fun. <laughs> now, you, you, you can go home this afternoon, and you, you can get in your bedroom and close the door, and you can try that, but it won't be the same. <laughs> oh, man. He is preeminent. He is first in all things, and that's who we are as the body of Christ. We rejoice that Jesus Christ is first, first of all, not a pope, not a pastor, not a bishop, but Jesus Christ, preeminent in all things. All right, where are we? Verse 20, and through him, oh, oh, uh, verse 19, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The deity of Christ. You know, this is whom we worship. We worship Jesus. We lift up his name. You know, we just honor and glorify him. I don't know how it goes. That, that's, okay. But all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, the entire universe, making peace by the blood of the cross. See, we're unashamed to preach the cross. There's some people think the cross is just sort of outdated. There's some people who think that the cross has passed its time. That's part of a mythological thinking back when when folks didn't know as much as we did. and, And so you could talk about death and you could talk about sacrifice. And we're beyond that now. We're more philosophical and we're more educated and we're more sophisticated. Folks, let me tell you this. It's the cross of Jesus Christ and the cross alone. There is no other salvation. There is no other sacrifice. There is no other way but the cross of Jesus Christ. And God was pleased in Jesus Christ to reconcile a lost humanity unto himself through the power and through the blood of the cross. We're unashamed to preach the cross. We're unashamed to proclaim that humanity is lost apart from Jesus Christ, unashamed to proclaim that God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're unashamed to proclaim that God sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross. And so we lift up the cross of Jesus, and that defines the content of our message. So God was pleased in Christ reconciling the world, but, but look, at, look at what that means in verse 21. And you who once were um, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. I'm going to try something none of you have the nerve to do. Not one of you has enough nerve to do this. Debbie, he's talking about you. You were alienated, you sinner from God. Okay. (laughs) Can I go home with anybody tonight? (laughs) Let me tell you why we're doing that. We read a verse like that and we think, yeah, he's talking about those other people. He's talking about me. See, I was alienated from God. In fact, some of the times of my deepest, most apparent alienation were my most religious days, you know. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm getting a degree. And in those moments, you know, you just sort of get sort of, uh, kind of proud of yourself, and it's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't really need God that much, alienated from God by my own pride and boastfulness. And Scripture says, and doing evil deeds... That is stealing from God what belongs to him. That is stealing my life that belongs to him and all the manifestations. We were hostile towards God. That's, that's our sin nature. We were hostile to God. Love the Scripture never leaves us there. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless by the cross. So that, that, that's the message. You know, we... You know, Christ is the head of the church, establishes the church, he sustains the church, keeps her safe, but he defines the church, he gives the church her mes- mission, and he gives her her message, and it's just this, you were alienated from God, but God sent his son to die in your place, and now you can be reconciled in Christ Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. All right? But then he gives us you know, sort of our marching orders. How are we to live? That's the next part of the next verse. He has reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death in order to to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You look forward to that day? Holy and blameless before God. On this earth, we go before God and we know we're forgiven, but we know we're still stumbling. And we know that, 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 that we've been reconciled to God, but we're still you know, sort of fighting and contending against him. We know that the Savior saved us, but we're still struggling with the sin problem in our life and that, that, that impulse for, uh, for sin. Um, you know, we're still struggling, but the day is coming when Christ will present us holy and spotless and blameless to the Father. You know, I was, I was listening to W.A. Criswell, and he was talking about a sort of a vision or a dream that he had. And in this dream, he was standing by the gates of heaven, and all the saints were walking in. All the saints were walking in. And along comes Peter and Paul. And so he says, I'll walk in with them. And he's walking in with Peter Paul, sort of like the way you used to sneak into the movies. And uh, I never did. <laughs> Didn't have to. We were overseas, and Armed Forces movies were free back then. Three musketeer for a nickel. I mean, it, it was great. Anyway, but you're walking in with Peter and Paul. I had to find out where I was. Walk, walking in with Peter and Paul. You come to the gate, <laughs> and God says, all right, Peter, Paul, that's fine. Hey, wait, you. Who said you could come in here? Wait a minute. I'm with Peter, and I'm with Paul. Let me tell you something. Peter and Paul can't you get, cannot get you into the gates of heaven. So you go back and you say, well, maybe somebody else comes. Along comes Martin Luther. Along comes John Calvin. And just to be theologically expansive, and along comes John Wesley. For some reason, they're getting along together. And and they're they're, they're walking along, and you're walking with them. You get to the gates, and come on in, Martin, and and, and John, and come on in, uh, John. And wait a minute. Why are you coming in? Well, I'm with Wesley and Luther and Calvin. You can't get in on their basis. They can't save you. Finally, the end of the line comes by. There's nobody left, and it dawns on you. You come up to the gates of heaven. God says, why would I let you in? Because when I was eight years old, almost nine, one month shy of nine years of age, I asked Jesus into my heart. I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. But you said that if I asked Jesus into my heart, I'd have a home in heaven for all eternity, and that's why I'm here. And you'll hear, come on in. Come on in because you're with Jesus. You see, when you stand before the Father, he can't abide our sinfulness and our unrighteousness. I mean, what are you going to do when you stand before God? Put on your very best Sunday rags? the rags of your righteousness and stand before God in these rags and say, look, who, look, I'm here. No, but what God in his grace and his mercy does is he takes your sin and the filthiness of your sin and he lays it upon Christ and he takes the righteousness and the beauty and the righteousness of Christ and he lays it upon you so that when you stand before the Father, he sees the righteousness of the Son and presents you holy and blameless and without reproach, before the throne of God's grace. This is what our head has done. This is what the head of the church has done for us. Uh, Let's let's read on. And, And then we have our, sort of our marching orders here in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now folks, that word if. That's not a condition word, that's an expression word. And what I mean by that is this, he's not saying, if you continue in the faith and if you persevere and if you last your whole life long, then God will save you. No, know, what he's saying is, because God has saved you by your grace, you will see it in this kind of perseverance and walking with Christ. You might wander away as the church has done, but Christ will bring you back. You might uh, flounder around and and, and just live in, in the confusion of your own sin, but God will will bring you up out of the muck and out of the mire back to Christ. He will bring you home, and it will be expressed this way, to continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so Christ gives us our 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 definition, and he defines it. So Christ is the head of the church, and what that means is he has established the church. It means that he sustains the church through history. It means that he defines the church and directs the church today. But it also means that one day he's coming for his bride. The day is coming when Jesus is coming for his bride, and he will take her home. There will be a great wedding feast in heaven. And those who are believers in Jesus Christ will be at that feast. I don't know. I was just trying to think about it this week. And as I did so, I just heard, you know, the the voice of heaven saying, Jesus, did you give and will you give your life for these people? He says, I do. And he turns to us and say, Will you accept the love of the Lamb expressed in the cross? I do. I do. And death will never part us because death is no more because Christ has defeated it by the power of the resurrection. The day is coming when Jesus will bring his bride home unto himself. Oh, glorious day. See, the church really is fun. I mean, when you start to think about the joy that is ours because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the head of the church has done for us. Now, I want to close with just an illustration. It comes from the book of Acts. Um, I, w- I won't read the, the, the text for you, but just remind you of those of you who know. If you don't, just listen. Um, but in Acts chapter 10, we learn about a man named Cornelius. Uh, and Cornelius was a man who was a Gentile, but he believed in the true and living God of Israel. He was a Gentile, but he was committed to to God as he understood him, he was supporting the work of God's people out of his own treasury. He was giving alms to them, but the the point was he was praying because Cornelius knew something's missing here. Out of the vastness and the richness of the Jewish tradition, Cornelius knew there's something more that is needed. Now, we skip over about 40 verses or so, and we come to the moment when God sends Peter to the home of Cornelius. Peter walks in. Cornelius says, this is great. I've been praying for you. God told me you were on your way. Uh, Would you like some mints and nuts? And, uh, you know, my wife baked a cake and all that. That's in the margins of my Bible. And so Peter comes in and Cornelius says, I've been waiting for you. Peter says, all right, let me tell you what's going on here. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, but a sinful humanity killed him. If you stop right there, we are most miserable. He said sinful humanity killed him, but God raised him. God raised him. And when Peter got to that point and said, you know, God raised him up, you know, he got a, a, like a sentence or two further along, and the Scripture says, and the Holy Spirit fell upon everybody in the house. Everybody in the house, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they started uh, worshiping and they started testifying and they started proclaiming who this Jesus is. They started exhibiting the power of the resurrection as the Holy Spirit came upon them when Jesus was preached to them. Beloved, this morning you might have the religion, you might have the membership card, you might have the Bible with the nice cover on it, you might have all the display and the outward looks of religion, but without Jesus Christ risen and without the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit, there's something missing still. And my prayer is that each one of you would know Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, the head of his body. My prayer is that each one of us would have him preeminent first in all things. My prayer is that each one of us will have been consumed by the power of the Holy Spirit drawing us to Christ that we might honor and glorify him. And then the fun just begins. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just thank and praise you for the gift of of Jesus Christ to us and for the wonderful work he has done for us. I thank you for salvation in him. I thank you that he has not left us to walk the journey alone, but has put us together with brothers and sisters in his body, the church. I thank you, Father, that we can turn to Christ with absolute confidence and faith, and he will guide and direct and shape and mold his church. But, Father, I pray your Holy Spirit now would work in our midst, draw us closer to your throne through the Son, and Father, that you would unite us together as the body of Christ and that he would be seen to have first place preeminent in all things. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.